Hello, it's Jack Tutor here of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak with musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Khayam Alami, who is an Iraqi multi-instrumentalist, composer, performer, label manager, and someone who, in my experience, has a very distinct relationship with music. You could say upon two different strands. I mean, there's his work as a performer and as someone who interacts with his instruments in real time. I mean, he's an incredibly proficient player of the oud, stringed instrument, and watching him play that you get this incredible sense that he's thinking about each gesture as he's doing it, every reflex. He's got a real sense of movement to his music and to pauses and silences and gaps and how everything threads together. But also as well, he strikes me as someone who's incredibly reflective of the bigger picture that surrounds his music. He's constantly thinking about his relationship with his instrument, how to revitalize it through technology you know, and uh, electronic means, or, you know, he recently worked with a hybridized, like electric acoustic piano with a microtonal element as well. So there's this sense of theory and critique and reflection that surrounds what he does as well. And I just find him fascinating to talk to. I mean, we've had an interview with Khayam on the site back in 2017, where I mean, he delivered some incredible answers to my questions. And then this is the first time that I've spoken with him verbally. And we had a wonderful conversation. And I really enjoyed the records that he picked as well. I had a week before where I was listening through them and, uh, yeah, had my mind blown by some completely fresh experiences. So you can find out more about Khayam's music at khayamalami.com. And head over to attentionmagazine.co.uk forward slash crucial listening for show notes, links to the albums that Ryan picked, and also links to his music. I think that's it. So without further delay, here's my conversation with Ryan Alami on Crucial Listening. Welcome to Crucial Listening. Ciao, Jack. How you doing? Yeah, all good. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, so before we get to your important albums that you brought today, I wanted to talk about a few of the things that have been going on for you in your musical life recently and your artistic life, because there seems to be quite a lot. I mean, for starters, I know you've just came, come back from CTM Festival in Berlin and were doing quite mm-hmm. a few bits there. I mean, how was that experience going to CTM? 
it was awesome. Uh, I love this festival. I've, I've played before and I have a good relationship with them. And um, I was really lucky this time that they afforded me like um, a nice opportunity to um, premiere this new project and to discuss, you know, all the kind of extra musical things that are around it. So um, aside from the show that I had um, at How Ains, which was also with Rabi Abaini and uh, Puya Puramin, um, I did a talk as part of the CTM Festival's discourse program. Um, and I also wrote an article for their festival magazine, um, so it was really like a, a holistic vibe and, and really cool to be there um, just to be able to, you know, catch some shows and meet up with some people and enjoy the vibe of Berlin. Brilliant. And I did read actually that you used a hybrid virtual acoustic piano, like microtonally tuned piano. Um, yes. So yeah, can you tell me about that? That sounds amazing. Well, um, basically the new project, uh, the new solo project I'm working on is called Kawalis, and it's a multi-part project. The, um, the first two parts are, so the first part is uh, is an oud, uh, electroacoustic oud um, section, which is kind of um, a work that tries to explore um, the oud in a very different uh, context, in a bit more of a minimalist and uh, electroacoustic uh, uh, direction tried to focus on you know like magnifying some of its uh, main gestures as an instrument but also in in terms of the gestures of performance thinking a lot about how to create um, an atmosphere around you know using an atmosphere using the 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 world of the maqams and the phrasings rather than relying on the the kind of stereotypical method of uh, taqasim, which is the kind of traditional method for improvising. Mm. And then uh, part two is the one that uses the microtonal piano, and that essentially addresses the same issues and the same ideas about the, the musical system, about the maqam system, about creating a world out of different maqams, but it does it using the piano and... Um, and yeah, it's a, I use a specific uh, model of a, of a hybrid piano made by uh, Kawai, which allows for um, MIDI output as well. So I'm uh, mixing between a virtual piano and then the acoustic prepared and um, extended techniques on the piano as well. So it's really, um, it's a strange project because it approaches these two fundamental instruments from, uh, you know, the, the oud in, in, in the Arab world is the principal instrument for theory and philosophy and uh, composition and obviously the same applies for the piano so it's nice using both but you're kind of slightly westernizing one and slightly orientalizing <laughs> one if you know what i mean and and trying to find a weird um, gray area in the middle between the two and what's it like working with those augmentations of those instruments i mean is there a divide between kind of known and unknown elements that you're playing with there in terms of how you navigate it as a player like when you're doing a particular gesture uh, how aware are you of what's going to come out the other side what kind of sounds going to be produced is there a sense of the unknown when you're uh, working with these instruments mm. well to be honest they 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 come from that place like both projects both parts of this project come from a very intuitive and um, and irrational I illogical place uh, uh, that that's really based on desire and then on a desire to hear 
this instrument and this kind of music in a very different way. But as that um, process was uh, developing, obviously things start to kind of solidify and, and you start to work with certain tools and then try to create a certain types of form and, and a narrative that can you know it's an attempt for it to try and be a bit more um captivating for for audiences because i think it's quite an abstract thing sometimes i feel very lonely because i feel like i'm trying these things that haven't really been touched upon before mm. if you think about the oud electroacoustic oud really hasn't been you know there aren't any recordings that you can kind of rely on it's not like if you're doing electroacoustic harp and you can just go straight to Zena parkins and and you know revel in her mastery of her instrument and the way she uses things it's not like you know electroacoustic cello or or whatever and the same when you go to the piano is there's like nothing that is you know microtonal piano exists but never in a really modal sense and never in um, especially not when it comes to extended and prepared techniques so you know you, you never hear maqam being played on a piano especially not in a very minimalist way so it's kind of a lonely place you feel like you're straddling these lines that are a bit vague and so i try to maintain some sense of narrative so that it doesn't sound that um, particular for audiences you know yeah it sounds potentially like something as you say because there's not a precedent there there's also no sense of what territory's been charted and, and what remains open for exploration which at least i guess gives you some kind of guidance as to how your playing may manifest on the instrument is it exactly is it difficult to kind of not get stranded amidst those possibilities, those infinite possibilities that you have as someone working with a, a, a particular setup for the, the first time. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, I mean, there are many possibilities and there are also many, many ways for it to just be gimmicky and a bit shit, <laughs> <laughs> to use a, for better of a, for, for use of a better word. You know, it's whenever you're trying something a bit different, it's, it's always tricky to try and actually get to the heart of it and just keep refining and refining and refining until you get to something that's really poignant and and beautiful and and expressive you know without having gimmicks and and you know ornamentation i guess is the word so that that's what's been very difficult for me because it's it's so easy to just get overexcited and and do anything and i find that you know i do hear that kind of approach to a lot of projects in general and, and I'm trying to stay away from that but at the same time you can't help but you know be excited and sometimes I think those kinds of overexcited mistakes are probably quite um, you know they're kind of necessary I guess you just have to do it yeah and another thing I wanted to touch upon was the upcoming premiere you've got of your collaboration with your wife Yalda Yunus a universe not made for us mm -hmm. so what's it like working with Yada. I mean, could you tell me a bit about the project, but also about the experience of actually collaborating with her as well? Yeah. So, um, uh, Yelda and I have been working on this project for about three years on and off, uh, you know, different residencies and trying to develop the, the work itself and the kind of language and, and way of working together. Um, we started by doing a residency that was really completely... Um, Tabula rasa, let's say it was. Uh, I don't want to say unprepared, but it was planned to be a um, an, an an exploratory 
uh, encounter where we, we didn't have any preconditions or, or preconceptions about what we wanted to do. And during that little process, um, a lot of kind of intuitive uh, subconscious ideas made their, way, made their way to the surface. And we used that as a... That, that's when we realized, uh, actually, we can actually work together and, and create something together because the, the subconscious collaboration was, was quite strong. Like the intuitive language that was being developed was really nice. And we found that we had actually quite a lot in common when it comes to artistic desires. And so one, one thing, just to kind of give that a bit more context, Yelda is a contemporary flamenco dancer. Um, she's Lebanese and she studied in Sevilla. Uh, she studied with Israel Galvan, um, who's a really, who's renowned for being the kind of avant-garde flamenco dancer of, of his era. And she was really trying to search for a, a, new, uh, a new language w- within, within that context that she'd studied and performed so many times in the past. And at the same time, for me, I was searching for something new with the oud and with Arabic music and with these ideas of, you know, microtonality and tunings and weird gestures and magnifying phrasings and these, these kinds of things I mentioned about Kawalis. And so very quickly we realized that we're both searching for a similar thing. We both have these kind of traditions at hand and uh, ideas about a contemporary approach and, and an avant-garde approach, let's say. Uh, but at the same time, a desire to create a new way of approaching that avant-garde-ness or contemporariness in, in some shape or form. And that's what, that's what the majority of the process was about, trying to find each of our own paths through that while at the same time trying to support each other so um and to create an environment that was uh, that was conducive for these two languages to kind of interact and and the end result is 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 an uh, i think a very um kind of open and and sincere work uh, that that tries to just navigate some of these um you know these artistic questions but also more personal and 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 i i want to say political even though that might be a bit charged but but there is a there is a sense of that in there Mm. i mean it's so fascinating to be doing some research in advance of this interview and seeing you manifest your expression in so many different ways so the other thing i wanted to also mention was uh, your work that you're doing for the prs foundation new music biennale which sounds really interesting. What can you tell me about that? Um, so that's a, um, uh, a commission from Opera North in Leeds in England. Um, they contacted me to see if I had any kind, any ideas in mind of a project I could do with them within the framework of the New Music Biennial. And uh, I had this, I've had this idea for an installation for a while, which is kind of based on. Um, let's say a modal maqam based generative music uh, this is something that's and, and microtonal as well so this is something that i've been thinking about a lot but i haven't had time to explore and develop and um, this opportunity just seemed perfect to do it and the team at uh, opera north particularly joe knuckles who's in charge of uh, opera north projects who are the actual kind of framework that's um, commissioning me they they got really excited about the idea and have been super supportive and so um yeah that that was proposed to the prsf and it was accepted as a as a commission so um, so that's what i'm going to be doing an, an, an installation where the music is 
modal macam based microtonal generative music wow <laughs> <laughs> long winded <Yeah. laughs> well it yeah. brings me on to the final question i wanted to ask you before we go into the albums which is when i interviewed you i think it was a couple of years back you talked about your relationship with the oud and I think you likened it to a marriage that was kind of petering out at the time and then was revived mm. by your engagement with different technologies and, you know, Ableton Live and Max. And I'm intrigued because you're you're doing this project which, you know, centres on, you know, deconstructions of the oud. What's your relationship like with the instrument now, you know, in 2019? Yeah, good question. Well, um, it, yeah, it definitely, you know, we managed to revive the spark, me and Gold, <laughs> and uh, things are going much better. <laughs> the, the kind of intimacies come back and, and we're discovering new things about each other. So, <laughs> uh, it really is like a relationship. Right? <laughs> um, yeah, I guess b- because I had this desire to just I had this need to just explore that instrument in a in a slightly different way and have a different kind of feedback and so the use of technology really helped um really helped in that so I've been working a lot with my laptop as a kind of partner um where where whatever I input kind of gets regurgitated and and spat back at me and and it's a not spat spat back at me that's really it's a horrible way to talk about relationship um uh, you know, it just it, things get processed in some way and come back out, and and so I can react to them and um, and develop a kind of conversation that isn't um, isn't a, a monologue. One thing I I tire from a lot when it comes to Arabic music is I that I feel most of the time it's really that tradition is really. Um, is really about monologues it's about one person saying one thing mm. and unless you're in a very um improvised environment where you know everybody's really allowed to let go uh, it's it's quite difficult to get away from that even within the in- improvised environments everybody's always kind of working within the traditional framework and what happens there is that it ends up rather than feeling like a conversation, it feels a bit like monologue, 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 you know, where everybody's doing their own kind of monologue within a, within a, a group setting. And that's not really what, what I've been looking for. And, and it's quite difficult to find instrumentalists who are that way inclined and also prepared to really try to break down their own playing. And, and it takes a lot of work. Like you mentioned, the article was from two years ago. It's, it's taken me maybe two years to be able to get to the, this kind of interaction with the instrument. So um, things have changed and they, they are better because I, you know, I made a much more of an effort to, to give the instrument a chance, I guess, and, and to try and break down deconstruct my own kind of muscle memory and and my own reliance on technique and phrasing and all of this kind of stuff um which which all musicians end up kind of falling into you you always fall into a trap of this is what you know and this is what you can do and this is what happens when you first pick up the instrument and you know just let yourself go and it's it's quite difficult to challenge that and say actually today i'm gonna say you know when you're not allowed to play a single uh, phrase that is you know uh, within the, the kind of tradition that you've that you've studied you have to do something else and you're not allowed to pluck in x manner you have to pluck in x manner or you know setting these kind of rules and guidelines to try and revive uh, some kind of um, 
you know novelty in in your relationship but but it managed to work and i'm and i'm really happy with it now and and it feels good i don't practice enough i don't play enough or would i'm you know caught up with a million other things and i just started a phd in composition as well wow so, um <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's it's all kind of it all it does all kind of go into the same basket yeah it sounds like everything's really uh, sp- spread out but it, it all comes from the same place there's there's some kind of continuity there. but um but yeah the, the, the relationship is we're, we're doing much better now, yeah. <laughs> i'm so glad <laughs> uh, so yeah. let's move to your albums now i mean one question that i like to ask guests when they come on is how they consider the term important I mean, was there a particular framing you used uh, or an understanding you used of the word important in order to produce the list of albums you've brought today? Yeah, I did, actually. Um, important for me meant things that, uh, albums that have um, inspired me to think about things in specific ways or uh, albums that contain music that permanently resides in my subconscious you know there are certain albums that you find yourself singing phrases from when you're doing the dishes or yeah just walking or picking something up there are things that just hang around right um or albums that were important to me now in terms of the way that i'm thinking about music and the kind of developments in my artistic past so it was really really hard to pick you know as i'm sure it is for every (laughs) other of your guests in past and future um so um so but those that was the kind of criteria and importance on a on a kind of personal level importance on a on a musical level and importance in terms of future and and the development well i'll let you pick which order we go in so if you'd like to give me the name of the first album and uh, a little bit about why it's important to you as well so i guess we could take things kind of chronologically so the first one would be jamil bashir's um arabesques um, this is a collection of uh, recordings by the Iraqi oud player Jamil Bashir, who is the brother of the very famous Iraqi oud player Munir Bashir. And in my opinion, and in the opinion, I guess, of many um, oud uh, professionals, Jamil is, has always been the, the favorite, the preferred uh, musician, but he never managed to have the same kind of limelight as Munir Bashir. He was never, he died quite young um, in the late 60s. He, he actually passed away in London and never kind of got the, 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 cred, the credence that he deserved, you know. So, um, so I wanted to highlight his album, which was really, really important to me when I started playing the Oud and when I first discovered it. And how did you come across it? Well, this is a, it's a quite a fun story. So coming across these recordings is quite uh, easy when you first stumble into the world of the Oud because, well, at least it was at the time, because the world of the Oud was kind of um, online, at least. It was really relegated to a couple of forums, one called Ziryab and one called Samai. And these are like Arab music aficionados, um, communities of Arab music aficionados who really tried to focus on rare recordings and 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 sharing these rare recordings via digital means through these forums and um, you very quickly um, fall upon these recordings by Jamil Bashir there aren't many recordings that he did um, and these are the only official studio recordings of him playing Oud solo as far as I know everything else that exists has either been from television broadcasts or from uh, private concerts and 
And so I, I stumbled upon these recordings and I started to do a bit of research about where they come from. And when I realized that they were the only official album, I started researching a little bit more. And the story goes that there is an ethnomusicologist by the name of Dr. Jean-Claude Chabrier, who is a kind of a mythical man. And uh, Dr. Chabrier was, uh, he traveled around the entire uh, Middle East and Central Asia all of his life. And during those travels, particularly in the 60s and 70s, he used to record a lot of musicians. And um, he released, he did a series of um, albums called Arabesques, of which Jamil Bashir's is one. There's also one by Munir Bashir, and there's there's others by uh, I can't remember the musicians' names, but there's an Iranian santur player. There's a um, Syrian uh, nai player, and a few other things. And these were uh, recordings that he did in professional studios in the Middle East whilst he was traveling and they were put out by um he had a kind of deal i think with pathé or or virgin at the time mm. and they were put out only on vinyl and they're completely out of print and unavailable anymore and so we're all relying on you know digital digitized versions that have been made and put up online on blogs or or shared you know in these little circles and uh, i actually w when i discovered the album and discovered this work of chabrier i was doing my ba at soas in london at the time and i managed to uh, track him down and go and visit him and have a chat with him uh, in paris and he's a really uh, amazing guy who is kind of you know on the fringes of everything he was he's on the fringes of ethnomusicology because he doesn't agree with the kind of french ethnomusicological um dogma let's say he's on the fringe of all of the kind of um academic and and institutional frameworks within which ethnomusicology and musicology and world music and and album making function he's uh, uh, an independent man and and that last time that i saw him would have been probably 2000 and I think it was 2008, 2010. He was, I literally, I saw him and the next day he was about to get into his car and drive to the north of Syria. So <laughs> literally drive. What? Yeah, yeah. He's an, an amazing character. Yeah. Um, he, he was like, I have got 3000 euros and my bag full of medicine. You know, he's, he's an old man and very small and quite fragile and has a lot of medical problems. He was like, I've got my bag of medicine and I've got 3000 euros. I'm going to get in my little car and I'm going to drive to Syria. Wow. <laughs> like, you are a legend. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And um, did you ask him? Yeah. Uh, he has. Sorry, go I ahead. was going to say, did you ask him about this album and the, the recording of this record? Absolutely. Um, so he told me basically that um, he, he wanted to, he knew that Jamil Bashir was really like the phenomenal old player and, and, and creative mind out of the two brothers. And also in terms of the music of Iraq, you know, Jamil Bashir apparently had the second biggest and most popular recording studio in Baghdad uh, after the national broadcaster. Um, wow. So he was not only a really incredibly creative and gifted oud player, he was, he was an excellent teacher and also a really forward-thinking artist. He opened his own recording studio in his own in his home with really um, high quality recording gear he was um, inviting musicians from all over the country to come and record and experiment and do things at his studio the whole time and when uh, Jean-Claude Chabrier approached him to do this recording he presented the idea of 
performing the Iraqi maqamat um, on the oud solo. Now, this the Iraqi maqam is a is a genre uh, all in its own. It's it's a kind of blend between the Iranian dastga system and the the Arab wasla system. So these are like long form composition, uh, you know, semi improvised compositional forms, vocal forms mostly. They're 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 all sung, and he decided to perform them on the oud, which is unprecedented. That hadn't been done before him. He's he's the only one that has that had done it in such a way since then other musicians have done some um you find you know uh, remnants of these maqam of this iraqi maqam tradition in people's oud playing but never in such a concise and poetic way and um, and so Chabrier was obviously really excited about this because he'd done a lot of musicological research into the Iraqi maqam and the concepts of form and intonation and tuning and and he said to me that there was nobody you know softer gentler nicer than Jamil Bashir uh, in, in, in every way you know in his performance in his language in his manner in his um, in his his hospitality he was really um, spoke of him so highly and so kindly and and it just made me fall in love with this guy even wow. more and i think you mentioned that it had some kind of effect on your own relationship with the instrument as well so what did that look like well the, the beautiful thing about jamil bashir's playing is that it's so poetic and uh, sensitive and really um, free of any kind of virtuosic, um, uh, you know, muscle flexing. It's much more about the poetry of the language. And and actually, I I did an analysis of one of his performances in comparison with vocal performances of the same Iraqi maqam. And what I realized was that he was literally singing on the instrument. And that's... You know, from a musicological perspective, when you understand that level of detail, it's really, uh, that's really an expression of mastery. Because in his mind, he is replicating the way vocalists, singers would approach this tradition, uh, but instrumentally. And, and the other, th- you know, the byproduct of that um, realization is that you come to understand why the oud is such a has such a prominent place in the kind of history of the Arab world. If the oud can so perfectly replicate um, the voice and vocal uh, ornaments and vocal um, uh, melodic developments, it's only because the vocal development comes from that whole system being developed on the oud in the first place. And so he kind of, for me at least, made this realization in my mind and and helped me tie things around full circle uh, to know that the oud is the source of the the theory and and the concept of how this musical tradition is formed. And that's why it's able to actually, you know, mimic a vocalist's performance. Uh, Such a fascinating circle to embark on. I mean, I think... Certainly, when I've heard of people talk about instruments as being akin to the human voice or reflexes that have the immediacy of the human voice, people tend to go to instruments that you play via the breath. So it's so interesting to hear Mm. about an instrument which has that same reflexive relationship, but involves a completely different biological system to achieve the same kind of immediacy. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
and and also the the immediacy, the sensitivity, the poetry, the subtlety. You know, we we know how powerful singing can be, and how the tiniest of little movements can can be so effective. And and you really hear that in his playing. Mm. And I think that's why he's he's such a a master of it. He maybe he doesn't have the same kind of. Um, silence, let's say, that Munir Bashir is revered for, but uh, but he has far more poetry and 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 far stronger ability of um, let's call it storytelling or or narrative, you know, which uh, I, I always find really really endearing because that's from an improvisational perspective and from a performance perspective that is really probably the hardest thing that you have to do and and so far in terms of the music of the world we only ever um we're only ever exposed to that as if uh, within the kind of indian music the raga tradition Mm. um that's the kind of main tradition that we 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 find this kind of ideas um spoken of and and the fact that jamil bashir really brings that to life so cohesively in these recordings for me was just like magic also considering the fact that each of the recordings on this album are between three and four minutes they're all like these very concise condensed renditions of these Iraqi maqamat and so you can you can literally learn what would normally be performed over an hour or two hours from a three minute <laughs> extract and that happened that happens a lot with Indian classical musicians who were recording at the turn of the century you know using gramophone discs and so they had um, very uh, limited time in order to be able to render ragas um, and and he is doing exactly the same even though he didn't have the time restriction wow yeah. it's, it's amazing I, I was listening to this over the past couple of days and listening to you talk about it and explain it makes me consider how i did feel when he was playing that there's this almost like this tumbling like moment of expression and then this these pauses and then another moment expression and pauses i'm wondering whether that's is that sort of like akin to you know singing where you have the intake of the breath and then another burst and then uh you know a moment of reflection kind of positioned within these flurries of activity it's uh yeah it's really absolutely it, and that's that's his mastery it's it's about it's about knowing when to play and knowing when to give your listener a moment to just think about what you said. Here, you know, it's a monologue, of course, because he's a soloist and he's performing, but by providing you with space to consider what he just said, in quotation marks, he gives you the chance to kind of lean in and and consider yourself not only what he's saying and that's really rare it's really rare to find that in in musicians I and mean, there are obviously a few uh, jazz musicians who are renowned for that uh, obviously miles davis mm-hmm. being the kind of classic but but this idea of space and and giving the listener a moment to just um really uh, consider yeah like you said what 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 was just said and and what idea was just presented is really um is a core element of what he does, but also a core element of of singing, I guess. Although I, I would add that, that there aren't many singers that, that do that. Even nowadays, you know, people are people's minds are overactive and so they just feel like they need to fill the gap all the time. Everybody needs to be doing something all the mm. time. Something has to be happening. It's very difficult to just 
say something and then wait and let that just resonate and and give whoever's listening in a moment to ponder and then take them somewhere else and it's really like storytelling you know it's like trying to guide somebody on a journey and to keep a few surprises here and there and keep people's attention um, captivated but this sorry just a quick note that this technique is it actually comes from a very religious um, uh, quranic recitation um, let's say aesthetic where it's very much about the the word so and and the, the text that's being recited and so it's very much about giving audiences a chance to reflect on this holy text that is being recited and obviously you can very clearly hear the musicological remnants of that in all Arab music but specifically in Iraqi maqam and then even more so in Jamil Bashir's performances because they're really about that it's like saying a couple of lines and then waiting a bit and then coming back with another couple of lines and waiting and, and so on and so forth Go to your second record now, Kiam. Um, if you'd like to give me the name of it and then also a bit about why it's important to you as well. Sure. Um, so the second one is uh, Dastan by uh, Mohammad Riza Shajarian and Parviz Meshkatian. Um, this is an Iranian uh, music album. Uh, Mohammad Riza Shajarian is, a, is the vocalist and Parviz Meshkatian is the sound tour player and composer. Um, this is one of... Uh, Shajarian's least known works. I discovered it when I was in Iran back in 2010. I, I went there for a couple of weeks just to hang out, meet musicians, and and get to know the that that musical world. And I met a really wonderful um, uh, tar and setar player by the name of Navid, who barely spoke any English and agreed to take me out record shopping. And this is one of the he he made me buy like I don't know 50 records. I think I came <laughs> wow. I came back with a ma- massive suitcase of CDs and books and tapes and stuff and. This was one of the albums he made me buy at the time. And when I got home and listened to it, I was just totally blown away. Um, uh, So the Iranian music system is based on the concept of a thing called the dastga, which is similar to the maqam system. So we're talking about a kind of mode, but it's it's not just a mode. It's a series of micro melodic phrases from which the performer or composer takes the influence and and creates new works. There's also a, a particular form in terms of how the the melodic modulations develop and um, how the music is approached. So some parts are solo vocals, sometimes are vocals accompanied by um, an instrumental interjections. Sometimes there's fast 
fast-paced kind of dances. Sometimes there's, you know, very open musical introductions or or um, interludes, and so these forms and and micromelodic formula they 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 give the composer and performer a kind of guideline about how to develop things. And and at the time when I was discovering this, I was just. Uh, studying this musical tradition and this particular record Dastan is in a uh, Dastga called Chaharga and this very very quickly became one of my favorite modes in the entire world um, it has a very particular intonation and tuning it has a phenomenal character and and its development is like three parts it goes into a very sweet kind of minor mode at one point and then it goes to into a very gnarly microtonal mode at another point and then it comes back round at the end and i just i find it so fascinating how you know changing the tuning of one note can just open up an entire world and and i think this exa- this album is a fantastic example of how that musical system works uh, aside from that the the instrumental interludes at the beginning of the album and, and at the end of the album just before the last song are are absolutely phenomenal um they're really forward thinking they they approach the music in a in a very different way and in, in they, approach the, they approach the tradition in a very different way even though today maybe it sounds a little bit dated but it just hangs with you there's a there's an energy about about those musical phrases and that tuning that just resonates and hangs and and this is the album i that i just kind of carry in my subconscious all the time i just find myself i don't know washing up or or tidying up my room and singing phrases from from those melodies that they're, they're just stunning wow i mean i love those records that have this peripheral presence that just linger with you regardless of whether or not you choose to listen to them I mean, yeah. is your is your compulsion then at that point to go back and listen to the record, or is it simply enough to to have it within your your life and your subconscious uh, as a in a kind of imagined form? Yeah, I, it starts when when at the beginning you're like just addicted and you just want to keep going back to it and listening to it. But after a while, it's when it becomes so embodied, right, embedded inside you. I just I don't feel the need to listen to. It. I, I I actually quite the opposite. I, I feel the need to just sit, do nothing, and and hear it in my mind, mm. um, and and I think that's one of the most beautiful things about music, because you can just sit and in silence and relive, you know, music that you've heard before, and and it doesn't matter whether you you understand music or whether you've you know you're you're doing it correctly or or not, you know, you just sit back and you hear that song and it makes you feel a certain way. It's just magic. I've, I've never been able to do the same with cinema, for example, or or an art piece or or anything else i can only do it with music and it just means the world to me that feeling yeah i mean certainly as well that sense of yearning and not having i think is probably something which is more difficult to instigate nowadays because it's so easy to follow that compulsion to spotify and just play it so (laughs) exactly yeah it's something you have to consciously ruins the mystery right yeah i mean it's like I, I love like, I'm a huge David Lynch fan and so sometimes I, I really think about the feeling in certain scenes that he has in his work and and he always talks about this he talks about this idea of creating a world right, in, in which you, there are, there's a certain energy there's a certain vibe and you can really feel that in his work and and sometimes I like to just think about the red room while you know this that track is playing and you just you know just 
put yourself in that place, it's really beautiful. It's a really beautiful sensation. And, and it's a shame that, yeah, that mystery in today's age is very often um, kind of discarded in favor of immediacy, right? Uh, yes. It's a shame. Yeah, absolutely. I think it divorces the material from the ability to haunt you, uh, which mm. often is about mm. absence as much as actually experiencing it. Exactly. There's a few other records that I feel that way about. Um, they're very different. You know, one of them is uh, Anima by Tool. Uh, one is Live at Leeds by The Who. <laughs> they're, they're completely different vibes. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's what my the rad- that's what my Spotify radio you know internal Spotify radio is like. It would jump from you know Muhammad Reza Shajarian to uh, Maynard James Keenan. You know, and and it makes perfect <laughs> sense. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned actually studying the musical modes that are utilized within um, I mean Muhammad's music for one. When you increase your understanding of the structures that underpin this music, I mean, do you find that uh, satisfying that that opens up avenues of understanding this music and, and relating with it in a different way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, actually, I get asked this question a lot uh, because I do a lot of research and I'm I'm always kind of curious to, to understand things. People always say, oh, well, doesn't it kind of remove some of the mystery? And the, now you know what's coming, now you know what's happening. And it, I don't think it does. I, it allows mm. you to appreciate things more because when you're when you're dealing with artists who are really masters of their craft... It's great to have your initial uh, emotional and intuitive reaction. And I think that's like the spark that you really have to hold on to. But, but I also really love the, the long burning embers that, that come after that. So you, you mm. have that spark and then this massive bonfire that happens when you discover something. And then as you delve deeper, you allow that, that, that warmth right, of that fire to to maintain so for, for so much longer and it stops being a, a fireworks show and it becomes a long burning you know uh, thing that that helps you keep you warm for a really long period of time and, and I think that's what you know getting into studying things and, and, and understanding them helps you appreciate it's very difficult to, to maintain a sense of distance to be able to actually hear new things after that with the same kind of openness and lack of judgment so i think that's where it gets tricky it doesn't get tricky when it comes to the particular piece in in question um mm. and and i love it like the more i know that oh very soon he's going to go up to that high note and he's going to stay up there for a while because that's the x section that's coming up now it's like ah oh, you know it's almost orgasmic because you you know what's coming and then it comes and it's fucking awesome and then you get this <laughs> payoff afterwards and and you're just like yeah it's, you know it's, it's like it's like hearing your favorite tune and knowing that the chorus is coming up you know yeah it's the same it's the same thing but stretch over like two hours <laughs> <laughs> i mean his voice is incredible i watched a video yeah. actually of him doing a tiny desk concert one of the npr ones yeah yeah and yeah that's a good one yeah it's like five years ago as well mm. i think he was in his 70s by this point and yeah just uh, there's a point actually where i was watching where he takes like a very deliberate in-breath and then Mm. catapults up like an octave above where he was (laughs) effortlessly it's amazing it's so good yeah yeah 
<laughs> now he's he's phenomenal and if you're really into him if you like if this kind of captured your imagination i would really recommend listening to as much of his work as possible but but if you really want to dig deep he's got some recordings where he recites the quran and i know like you know religious music is always a bit taboo but when you listen to that stuff and where he's given the complete free reign of time because he needs to you know like we were talking earlier get that meaning across and so time you know he's not on a radio station or he's not uh, recording an album and, and in confined by things he's free to take his time and 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 let you engage with his his rendition it's just magic man really oh, magic wow. Oh, yeah, yeah, I think I'm going to have to... If you could send me some links after this uh, for me to Absolutely. check out, that would be amazing. Absolutely. So let's go to your final album now. Uh, so if you could give me the name of it and uh, a little bit about why it's important to you as well. Sure. So the last one is Wendy Carlos's Beauty in the Beast. Um, again, this is a really uh, unknown record. It's out of print. Um, you'll only find it by you know digging around on online uh, communities and it's an album that she made in the late 80s that utilizes only microtonal tunings so uh, wendy carlos is very famous for switched on bach and the use of her music in stanley kubrick's a clockwork orange yeah um she was the one who kind of brought synthesizers to the masses and and made you know electronic music seem acceptable by people because she performed bach on it but she was also a real visionary um, who was really um, interested in the development of music and technology together and in pushing the boundaries of what technology could do. And for this particular record, she was really focused on non-Western tunings, um, her own uh, devised tunings, and historical Western tunings. And in order to do those with electronic instruments at the time, she had to um, hire software programmers to create um, computer software that would allow her to do, you know, make these tunings accessible and to be able to compose works in these tunings and um, this album is just an incredible feat of uh, ingenuity uh, you know compositional creativity and you know technological uh, uh, boundary pushing for the time you know nobody else was doing something like this you had Harry Parch in the late 70s or sorry even earlier than that Harry Parch was um, creating his own acoustic instruments to render some of his ideas about tunings and intonation. But uh, Wendy Carlos took that, you know, much more, uh, m- much further and, and used synthesizers and computer-generated sound to, to, to make this work. And it's mind-blowing. It's very strange. And, and it takes a bit of getting used to because it sounds weird and the tunings are weird and, and she uses some tunings that are really obscure that, that she created. But 
But there are moments of really consonant, blissful music that's just really out there at the same time. Um, I really love the track, uh, I can't remember what it's called, A Poem for Bali, I think it's called, yeah. where she basically creates a new work for, for gamelan, for, for Javanese gamelan, but completely synthesized. I mean, this, that whole track is created in a, using a digital computer and, and probably a mix of digital and and analog synthesizers and so just that on its own that that 12 minutes is enough to to totally blow my mind because that means that she had to not only study the tunings and and know how to man you know uh, um, uh, navigate those tunings but she also had to study how gamelan music is composed and then to compose a new work based on those it's just you know mind-blowing that she did that alongside everything else that's on that record uh, you know it's just really yeah, out yeah. Of this world, and then funnel also that understanding into mathematics effectively in order to realize it in a musical form. It's just unbelievable. I mean, do you? Yes. Do Do you remember how you first came across this record? I I only came across it in the last six months because I've been doing as soon as I started oh, my wow. PhD. One of the, yeah, one of the first things I started looking at was um, the use of microtonality in contemporary composition, and um, I had heard about Wendy Carlos's experiments, and I'd heard about I'd known that she'd created a few tunings. She has a couple of articles on her website, but I also had heard about an article that she had written for uh, the computer music journal in the 80s discussing her process about this particular record. So as mm. soon as I started my PhD, I managed to track down a copy of this um, of this article and have a read. And it, and it blew my mind because she was so unacademic in her language, but extremely academic in the rigorousness of her research. Mm. And when you, when you understand the lengths that she had to go to to actually make this... Uh, album a reality and the kind of knowledge that underpins this process it, you know it just makes you love her even more and I, when I discovered it I was yeah it totally blew me away because she's not only trying to grasp um, non-western compositional techniques but she's also uh, going way beyond that she's doing multiple different traditions she's using multiple tunings in the same compositions she's pushing all of her equipment to them to the you know limit of what it can do whilst also having a, a completely like masterful grasp of the mathematical and scientific background that underpins all of this stuff which is so rare in the world right <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah so she's really an inspiration and, and when i heard it i was just blown away so this has been this is this is new for me and and this is what i mentioned earlier about um the you know the three different categories that i tried to choose albums in so this is an album that's really inspiring me in terms of now and and what i'd like to think about for the future that's not to say that i want to create an album that sounds like beauty and the beast but i really working a lot on the idea of using technology and microtonality to create new new works that look at you know the arab maqam system and middle eastern musical systems in a different way and uh, and, and in a sense that's what my, my my phd is about too and i read those articles that you mentioned where she talks about the creation of this record and also the liner notes which are really mm. insightful into each track but she mm. talks a lot in terms of discovery and exploration but she uses a lot of metaphors around 
just being in these sprawling gigantic planes of possibility which immediately from the outside seem to parallel with the experience that potentially you yourself are going through with uh, combining these technologies with your own instrumental setup i mean did you feel any or do you feel any affinity with her experience of entering new terrain and then being like right okay how am i going to do this 100%. 100%. And and the beauty of of Wendy is that she wasn't afraid to share the experiment. Um so, mm. and, and by that I I mean I think she knew perfectly well that some of these compositions, some of these ideas maybe weren't like 100% um you know whatever like artistically wow but she it for her it was an experiment she's asking questions and she's letting the answers just be and she's letting the answers exist and i think this this was the main kind of influential point that i i took from this record was don't be afraid to ask questions and let whatever outcome whatever creative outcome just be you don't have to form the creative outcome into this masterful work that is so perfectly balanced in in every shape and form you know mm. you can just let it be you can just express and and share your um, perspective on this you know wide open plane like she mentions you know we, we we're all gonna come into that space from a different angle from a different perspective from a different height from um, from from a different um different color right so uh so it's important to just let that be and and i think a lot about her and i think a lot about artists like paul clay for example paul clay's oeuvre is basically his experiments you know the majority of his really great works that are really touching are, are the ones where he was just trying something out um and i think you can even say the same for like jeff buckley's recordings from the cine cafe or pj harvey's four track recordings or you know this right. kind of stuff those moments in artists careers where they're just being really open to the creative process and letting things be and not trying to control them too much and and that's something that i struggle with because i feel like in today's age we are there's such an incredible back catalog of masterworks that that we're kind of they're the, they're the, the the shoulders of the giants that we're we're standing upon and and sometimes it feels really intimidating to try and create something that might be as good as you know the things that mean the most to you and and this record and and this kind of idea has been really empowering you know you, you don't have to create something amazing just do it and let it be and the fact that you're asking these kind of questions should be enough Well, Kiam, thank you so much. This has been so great to speak to you about these albums and also your latest projects as well. So thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, thanks to you, Jack, for, for, for asking. You know, it's, it's nice to share these little gems with people. So. And if people want to keep up to date with what you're doing and the projects that you've got coming up, where's the best place for them to head online? 
Uh, Twitter and my website. I'm really recoiling from uh, from Facebook and Instagram and all these other you know social network stuff because they're they're starting to drive me crazy. So you know, Twitter is a good place for like you know regular things, but uh, the mailing list on the website is the place for the for the main updates. Fantastic. Well, great. That's all for this week. So to everyone listening, I will see you next time. 